Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to talk, continue to talk about the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter, this time the 14th to the 30th verse. We've seen a radical turn in the Gospels from the parables that the Lord was telling, from the arguments that, for instance, he was engaged in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the elders, the chief priests, and so forth. We've seen kind of the bantering between the two, the attempts of the uh, Pharisees to always kind of trick him into taking a position that they could be dismissive of uh, by identifying him with a a faction that they were at enmity with for some reason or other, and that Jesus had never, it wasn't in his interest whatsoever to simply outwit them in these debates and in these uh, clever discussions, rabbinical debates, but that he always, he pointed out something that I think is very important for us too. If you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. And they raised issues that didn't have a serious enough resolution to those issues to be considered in any way, shape, or form critical or important in any way to the understanding of, the acceptance of, or the conformity to the spirit of the covenant of the Lord. So basically, the trivialization of faith was something that Jesus simply stepped beyond. I know that there are a lot of arguments that say that, you know, that he simply outwitted them with their own rabbinical arguments and so forth. But I think that it was, it was, it was less horizontal than that. I, I think that, that he really always reached beyond the trivia, beyond that which was not significant, and zeroed in on that which was. Once through these encounters, he had instructed his disciples not only in the seriousness of faith, the seriousness of the covenant versus the trivialization of it by the culture in which they lived, he then found that it was time to turn toward greater issues, more serious issues, where he himself took the lead. It was not a response to the pharisaical um, upmanship. Um, it was, in fact, now turning toward those things which were deadly serious. And the last gospel that we looked at, they talked about the ten wise and the ten foolish bridesmaids. The gospel we're going to look at today is a continuation of that theme, and one which draws it to a deeper level, to a more profound, to a more serious level, or a level perhaps with more, with more impact on each individual person. And it goes like this, Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like a man on his way abroad who summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one one, each in proportion to his ability. And then he set out. There's, there was a great deal of this kind of entrepreneurship in ancient Israel people owning vast amounts of land or wealth or so forth, 
But, you know, without communication, without ease of travel and so forth, you had to have people who would step in and look after affairs for you, take care of affairs for you. We saw this also in the parable of the vineyard, that the Lord went away and uh, left the tenants then to tend the vineyard. And so he says, the man who had received the five talents promptly went and traded with them and made five more. The man who had received two made two more in the same way. But the man who had received one went off and dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now, here we are again getting into this vast idea of exaggeration. Remember that we hit this idea of exaggeration with the, uh, with the unjust steward, the one who, who owed um, his master a billion dollars, and the master dismissed it out of pity on him, and yet he went out and for 5000 threw someone else into prison because they would not pay back to him. Well, here we have the same kind of exaggeration of go on, but there's a reason for the exaggeration. And the reason for the exaggeration is that money is never the question. Money, gold, or silver is never the question in these. Gold always represents a commodity, but the commodity is always faithfulness to the Lord. So when he's talking about giving someone five talents, a talent in modern day money, if you go and you go through, um, it's like worth a 6,000 days wages. And so basically what it comes out to is $2 million in modern money in this equivalency business. So if he gave him five talents, he gave him $10 million. And the man went out and made $10 million more. In other words, the gift that was given was equaled in the life of the man. The second one did the same, but the third one, the third one buried the money and did nothing with it. That in a way, Jesus is talking to us about the gift that he gives us. We find, for instance, in the Council of Orange, of, uh, of Arles, it is, I think, in 529, that the initiative of faith is given by God. In other words, we can believe, we get into this whole idea of grace, we can believe because the Lord has given us the gift of faith. And he has now given the gift of faith in different quantities, amounts, and intensity to different people. What does he expect of that? The first one went out, and we might say was a very evangelical person, was a very charismatic person, went out and shared his faith to where that gift that was given to him, he shared, he shared doubly with those around him. And the result of it was, of course, that the kingdom of God, the church of God, was enhanced, built up, made greater. The same way the two talents. Again, a huge amount of money. It's still $4 million. Um, and he goes out and makes another $4 million. He has less to give than the other, but he gives everything that he has, and he gives it in such a way that it doubles itself within the lives of other people. And then the one went off and dug a hole. This is the one that says, you know, my religion is my private matter. It's nobody else's business but mine. I have no obligation to share it. 
Um, I think, and, and, and not to cast aspersions upon the person, because the politics of the time were certainly, this was the only way that it was going to happen, was John Kennedy in 1961 when he was confronted. There was a tremendous amount of the 1950s, there was a tremendous amount of anti-Catholicism in the United States. And when John Kennedy was nominated president as a Catholic, the, the rumors were real. We look back and say that's foolish, but the rumors were real. How much influence would the Pope have on John Kennedy's presidency? How bound was he to obey the Roman pontiff in matters of faith and morals? And how much would that make him impervious to the machinations and the movements of, of civil law? And so while this was a huge debate, and even uh, Norman Vincent Peale, the, the, uh, the great Protestant preacher of positive thinking, um, even he expressed deep concern about the confusion of loyalties in a Catholic politician and quoted St. Paul uh, to defend himself and defend the rule of secular law and uh, to condemn Kennedy as a result. Whereas Adlai Stevenson then made the famous quip, I find Paul appealing and Peel appalling, uh, and came to the defense of Kennedy. But what Kennedy did was then he made that famous distinction, which has plagued American politics ever since, that he, was, he could separate his public life and his religious life. In other words, his religion would have no impact whatsoever on his political activities as president of the United States. It got him elected to the presidency, but at a horrible cost to Christianity and at a horrible cost to the moral integrity of public law and civil discourse and political office. So we find even into the present time that this absolute separation of religion and politics has led to, to an evisceration of the spirit of the political life. And in this evisceration of the, of the spirit of political life, we find people claiming all sorts of religious affiliations and yet espousing the most heinous of crimes and doing so with abandon, with having no qualm of conscience, not because of anything that is inherent in the faith, but because of a political expediency in 1961 that has not in any way lessened over the succeeding 60 years. And so, and it's exactly what's talking about, the one who has faith and yet refuses to allow it to enter into their public life is the one who digs a hole, buries it in the ground, and hides it. Then, I don't mean to, to, to draw partisan politics into this, but what I do mean to say is that this is an issue also among Catholics themselves, that in not just great political figures, but ordinary Catholics who vote contrary to the moral law and feel justified in doing so because faith is a private matter, it's not something for the public forum or the public arena. Well, the man who had received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Now comes the interpretation. Now, a long time after, and so once again, this man that went off and gave his property, this is, of course, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who now goes to his death and who promises that he will return. 
So after a long time, and we know what it means, at least in our experience of time, to know what a long time it is, for it seems like a very long time that the Lord has been gone for us as well, and a very long time that we have waited for his return. And so he went then to the man who had received five talents, who had received the $10 million. And the man brought the 10 million back and another 10 million. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with five talents and here are five more that I have made. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with greater things. Come and join in your master's happiness. In other words, because you brought this gift to others in double proportion to what I had given you, and I had given you much, this particular one, now come and enter into the happiness of the kingdom. Then he said, I will trust you with greater things. Now the next man with two came forward and said, Sir, you have entrusted me with two talents. Here are two more that I have made. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with greater things. Come and join in your master's happiness. In other words, I don't ask more of you than what you had to give, but I do ask what you had to give to be given completely to others for the sake of the kingdom of God. Then the last man came forward and said, sir, I have heard that you were a hard man reaping what you have not sown and gathering what you have not scattered. So I was afraid, and I went off, and I hid your talent in the ground. And here it is. You can have it back. But the master said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, so you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I have not scattered. Well, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have recovered my capital, but with interest. So now, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has five talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough. But from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As for this good-for-nothing servant, throw him out into the dark, where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Those who take the faith and selfishly consume it and therefore do not even live that faith in the public forum, in the public arena, that what little they had will disappear. We can see that certainly culturally in our lives. We can see very clearly culturally in our lives that those who do not exercise the faith, those who do not act upon their faith, those who do not make the faith a part of their life, public and private, those who do not respond to the admonitions of the Lord, those who do not worship, those who do not pray, those who do not love their neighbor for the sake of the Lord, those who do not believe in the primacy of Jesus Christ, all of that, eventually they don't believe much of anything. Eventually everything becomes hollow for them. And I think that we see this too, for instance, in attitudes toward even the Eucharist, which as the flesh and the blood, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, comes to be seen simply as kind of a, uh, a pro forma action. Um, this whole idea of, well, why can't everybody receive after all? You know, we don't want to make people feel not welcome. 
someone feeling not welcome into a world to which they have not agreed to participate is more important than honoring the Lord, the God of heaven and earth? I don't think so. Those who say then, we, we read in the papers, and, and this is a deceitful number, let us say, like 60% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. Well, who are these Catholics? They are the ones who received the one talent and buried it. They are the ones for whom faith doesn't mean anything. It's not an active part of their life. We have millions of Catholics who don't really believe, but culturally, they are part of something that they historically identify with, which for some reason or other becomes very important to them. But the meaning of it does not. And the consequences of it are immaterial to them. The prerequisites for its enlivenment and its enhancement in our lives are, are simply dismissed. And so we establish then, we find a large number establishing a whole new understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Some of it, some of it, of course, and, and, and this has to be nuanced, this can't be just a blatant statement, but certainly some of it is the, the social justice warriors business that have taken up the thing that what I believe, um, how I relate to the living God is of no use to me, my whole character is judged on what I am able to do in order to alter society for the well-being, theoretically, of others. Oftentimes that well-being is purely theoretical and has nothing to do with the good of others. But I, and I think we see this in much of the altruism, political altruism, and political um, altruism of the government, of the, of the United Nations, of certain charitable organizations with the, the delusion of doing good for others, they do well only for themselves. And others uh, suffer the consequences of their, of their shallowness. We see this, for instance, in the, in the United Nations population programs. We see it in much of, uh, for instance, there are actually people who think somehow or other that Planned Parenthood does good to others um, instead of kind of being Murder, Inc. We find people thinking that the World Monetary Fund, um, withholding funds from those whose cultures and values of those cultures we disagree with, and so we'd rather starve them to death than live with the diversity of ideas and the diversity of culture. I think that, that we kind of know this, we kind of understand this. The difference um, between those who commit their lives and give their lives um, you know, for the sake of others, and those who rise to great prominence socially, politically, and so forth for altruistic reasons all the time, gaining all of the profit for them, while the others gain only, only distortion, dishonesty, and sadness. I think that we have to be very careful of that. And if that figure, 60% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence, then that means 60% of the Catholics don't believe in God, because the real presence is God. And that for us to take a posture toward it, which is other than respecting what it is in itself, 
and what it has proclaimed itself to us to be. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. If they believed that they were eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of, of, the Son of Man, if they believed it, they would have life in them. But as it is, they've turned it into an inanimate object that somehow or other simply affirms an identity for them and a sense of empowerment for them in that identity. This is a hard topic to talk about, and I'm sure that I step over boundaries in doing so in many different ways, which I don't intend to do. But how do we talk about this in any other way? How do we talk about the man who was given the talent and buried into the backyard and what it really means? It isn't, you know, that Jesus takes the poor man's money and gives it to the rich man. That's, 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 not what, that's not what the parable is all about. That has nothing to do with this parable. It has to do with, with he sadly takes back from him what he has squandered, what he has made useless, and he gives it to another that it might come to life, that it might have life, that it might become useful in the world. And so the more we believe the more we believe and the more we practice the faith, the greater is our capacity for receptivity to faith and the greater is our capacity to share it and the greater is our capacity to see it as active and alive in the world. We dare not bury what the Lord God has given us. We must use it and live it in the midst of our world. This is all this parable is saying. And why must we do that? And the parable does not leave that out come and enter into my happiness. This is part of the end times parables that Jesus is talking about in order to give his disciples a sense of purpose beyond what the troubles that they are going to experience. We are now, right now, on the precipice of the passion. They are going to go through the most horrible ordeal of their life, and they are going to have in totally invested their life in Jesus Christ. They have given up everything. They have followed him. They have become itinerants. They have done all of that. They have trusted him. They have believed him. And all of that is now going to be tested. And it's going to be shattered. We know from the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we know exactly what was going on with that. We thought that this was going to be something great and it turned out not to be. It turned out, you know, we, we've left everything, we followed him and we end up with nothing. And Jesus says, remember, you look not to the crisis, but you looked to the end. And that's what he's saying to us as well. Don't lose it on the journey because it takes so long. Don't lose it on the journey because it becomes inconvenient. Don't lose it on the journey because you can become enamored of ideologies and ideas, alien and hostile to what I've told you. The disciples had every opportunity to become hostile to Jesus. He failed them. He just did not deliver the goods that he had promised to them. They could very easily, as Judas did, turn to the Romans. Judas regretted it to the point where he even gave up his profit for it, but at the same time also despaired because of the grave sin that he had committed. We may not even despair of the grave sins that we have committed. We may not despair of our salvation 
if we but receive the gifts that the Lord has given us, live them well and share them with others. How do we share them with us? Certainly this is the challenge of the parents. The parents just don't go to church and tell their kids to go to church. The parents share faith with their children. The parents sh share the wonders, the transformative value of, of faith in Jesus Christ with the ones who are entrusted to them. All of these things become part of the interpretation of this parable. And if we don't put contemporary flesh and blood on the bones of the parable, we can be dismissive of it as so many are dismissive of the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, and we can simply say, well, this is kind of an exercise in injustice that somehow or other only the successful entrepreneur reaps a reward and the ordinary poor Joe, he, he, gets, he gets put down. This, this can be interpreted as part of the gospel of prosperity. It's none of those things. It's a story about faith. It's a story about the second coming. It's a story about hope. It's a story about what it means to receive the gift of faith the gift of faith from the Lord, the gift of grace, the gift of hope, the gift of trust, the gift of the promise. That's what it's all about. And we cannot take it and clothe it in the ugly trappings of contemporary times. We cannot clothe it in the ugly trappings of any time. We can only take it for what it is, a talk, an example of the fact that the Lord will return and when he does, we will be accountable for the gifts that he, the gift of faith that he has given us, what we have done with it, how we have lived it, how we have shared it. And that is what the parable is about. Move away from all of the other and watch it get distorted in every age. Stick close to the Lord, believe what he says, accept the faith, live it well in your lives, and share it generously with others. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.